This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at myhealthpolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at myhealthpolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called myhealthpolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose myhealthpolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to myhealthpolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START, myhealthpolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates myhealthpolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. Welcome to the interview. Today's guest is Raptors play-by-play announcer, Matt Devlin. Matt and I talk about how broadcasting is different in the bubble, lasting changes that COVID may bring, the use of technology in the NBA, the Raptors' playoff chances, skills required to pursue a career in broadcasting, how Matt continuously improves at his job, peers that he admires, and the list goes on. There's a lot of topics on here. Enjoy the show. So Matt, the bubble is alive uh, some people say it's got a summer league feel to it because a lot of uh, you know a lot of players show up to summer league. But in the case of the bubble, the entire NBA is there. It's it's almost like a trade conference for every single NBA player. What, what kind of opportunities does everybody being there at the same time sort of present itself? Well, I think number one, it is like a summer league because when you think back to summer league in Las Vegas, you know, twenty four teams. Uh, typically are represented there playing, but then you would also have members of all 30 teams there uh, from a scouting standpoint, and then all the meetings that are held in Las Vegas from the NBA. And then I think it also has that feel, obviously, because uh, it's dressed down. Uh, you know, the coaches aren't wearing a uh, suit and tie. And it's, you know, the middle of the summer. So I think that adds to that element. But, you know, there's obviously, you look back to last night, you know, Kyle and DeMar, you know, watching, uh, you know, the Laker game and uh, Clipper game and uh, players being able to uh, go to the different venues. There's three venues there uh, to watch games. And so there's definitely uh, that sense, you know, that, you know, the friendships 
that you have uh, with other players that will continue. And then also, you know, there'll be a bond created between players that get to know each other better uh, over the course of that time. And, and specifically, that would be the case uh, for all the teams, right, based upon all the different activities that they have there. Uh, and when you think about, you know, that time, you know, for some, it's going to be, you know, a quick time in the bubble with respect to the eight seeding games are coming up. And uh, as we know, you know, six of those teams ultimately will leave the bubble at the end of the seeding games. Uh, And then uh, for the other teams, they're going to have the drive obviously for uh, the title, uh, which could take them into October. And you mentioned the title there, and uh, I was talking to Dave Hopla, who's a former uh, rap resistant coach, and uh, he, he made an interesting point. He goes, yeah, there for sure is going to be an asterisk uh, next to whoever wins the title this year, uh, but the it's it, it, for a change, it's actually a positive asterisk because it, it might actually mean more to win a title in this constrained setting than you normally would because there's so many other aspects at play here. Alvin Williams mentioned the psychological aspect of playing in a bubble and how that might impact players. Winning a title is obviously hard, but winning it in this setting surely presents a whole new set of challenges. Uh, I I would agree with that. I I agree with that. I I think, you know, when I initially when all this was being discussed, as you know, people were saying, I'll put an asterisk by it. Well, you can't put an asterisk by it unless you're going to say that this could be one of the most difficult uh, titles to ever win based upon everything uh, that, you know, the players uh, and coaches are putting aside to enter the bubble. And for the Toronto Raptors, of course, that started even prior to entering the uh, Orlando NBA campus bubble because they had a pre-bubble bubble for training camp. And that was going to Florida Gulf Coast University in the Fort Myers area uh, and staying uh, in Naples, Florida, and, you know, having those two weeks uh, leading up. And so, you know, this is definitely going to be a experience that whoever emerges, uh, you know, it's going to be a strong-willed team. And, and that's why, you know, for me, I believe the Toronto Raptors in the Eastern Conference are that team. Uh, they've been there before. They've done it before. They've shown how resilient they've been year in and year out. Um, and then when you start thinking about from a defensive standpoint, uh, all the different looks uh, that they have, uh, all the different things that they can do, the versatility. And, and that just, you know, I, I actually speak about it quite often, but I, I don't know how often, uh, you know, people do talk about this, that, when you think about the ability to win a title, you have to have a versatile lineup. You have to have a roster that can play multiple styles. So many people, when you look at a team, will say, well, this is who we are. This is the sort of style in which we play. Yes, from a foundation standpoint and a core principle standpoint, you know, those are the sort of things that you want to have. But you have to have the ability to be fluid and adapt. and Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster have done an amazing job throughout the years of providing that from a roster construction standpoint. And then you have Nick Nurse, who uh, is willing who in the second round against, uh, and you know all the numbers, you know, against the Philadelphia 76ers to play big when, in fact, Serge and Mark had played together all the 31 minutes during the regular season. Uh, 
uh, he knew that in order to achieve what they wanted to achieve, which was ultimately win, that this is what uh, they needed to do. They needed to play big. And so that is extremely important to have uh, when you get into, you know, this uh, playoff mindset and mode and then understanding uh, the sacrifices that are made. And, and, and that is when even you look at the Raptors roster, how selfless they were last season. Uh, they have that in the sense that they're about one thing and one thing only, and that's winning. If they're going to show up and if the ball is going up in the air, uh, they want to win. You mentioned the pre-bubble bubble, which the Raptors uh, went through. Are there other teams who also went through similar pre-bubble bubbles, or does that give the Raptors a bit of an edge because they had more time to kind of prepare? Well, the, it's not that they had more time to prepare. Uh, the other teams in the other 29 teams were all allowed to go back to their training facility, right, and in each one of their cities. And so different for the Toronto Raptors in that they're the one team uh, that is outside the U.S. here in Canada. And there's a 14-day quarantine, as we know, in place. And so as they were planning this uh, with so many of the players, you know, as, as we know, after their initial quarantine coming back from Utah on March the 9th, after that period, a lot of players did return home. And so... Uh, the NBA allowed, and obviously, understandably so, uh, in the Raptors organization, when you take a look at everything and said, okay, you know, you know, what can we do in order to get that practice time? And, and, and the practice time in the pre-bubble bubble was uh, following the regular protocols of what, you know, they, uh, the NBA had set out in the CDC and how many players, um, you know, could be on the court. Uh, shooting and, and all of those sort of different things. But anyway, uh, you know, the Raptors are the only team that did that. And that was just based upon uh, with players stretched out, not only over Canada, the United States, and then also Marcus all going back to Spain, that the best thing would be to, you know, meet in Florida and have that time period there, um, which I think, at the end of the day, getting come back to your question, I do think that that was a benefit in that uh, they all came back together uh, and that you're not, you know, when you get done with practice, you're not just going home, right? You're together um, and you're experiencing, you know, this a little bit before going into uh, the bubble itself. But um, you know, we all follow NBA bubble life, and that gives us an opportunity to ultimately see a lot of the things uh, that are going on uh, inside the bubble. And, and the Raptors have put out some great uh, videos, you know, about, you know, with Open Gym, as you know, you know, the time period um, in Naples and in Fort Myers. And then obviously right now uh, inside the bubble uh, in Orlando. Uh, but that's you know, my experience of what they're going through is coming through the, that video and then listening to the players and reading and being on the RAPS media availability calls and, um, you know, speaking to Nick Nurse and, and Masai about, you know, what is, you know, life like inside that bubble.
So from a, from a personal perspective, obviously your job has changed where you are calling the games remotely now. Can you walk us through what your setup is and how you call the games? Uh, because obviously it's much, much different than what you're usually used to. Yeah, so it'd be very much like anybody that's watching it at home, except for I have a microphone, uh, you know, and, and that is there's a big screen TV in front of me. Uh, and I'm calling the game off of a, a television monitor. You know, a lot of work went into the planning because obviously uh, there's a lot of different details um, and a lot of different scenarios, right? And those scenarios, you know, based upon, you know, if Toronto became an NHL hub, which obviously it did, uh, would the Blue Jays be able to play games? Uh, right now, obviously, they're not uh from a home standpoint, but yet they were able to uh, come to Toronto at the Rogers Center and train, and then also providing a facility from a, a COVID standpoint that there wasn't a lot of people moving in and out of the area in which you're calling the game, right? What, what can you do to create the safest, most sanitized environment uh, in order to call the game? And then also, understanding that, you know, TSN is going to have a studio, Sportsnet will have a studio, and where are we going to be? So a lot, you know, every game that is done uh, for the Raptors and in broadcasting, you know, the control room is actually out of a television truck trailer, right? Like a big 18-wheeler rolls in, and there's a mobile studio or mobile control room inside, not a studio, but a mobile control room inside. And that's where the director, the producer, the technical director, the font coordinator, that's where everybody uh, is. And so what they've done is we have uh, that. And then also they created another mobile unit uh, that inside they've created a, a mini studio in where we're able to social distance uh, with Jack and Leo and Sherm, uh, who did the second uh, scrimmage with me. And then uh, we have robotic cameras in there and we have a big screen television, uh, have a desk, you know, little area to put my notes and stuff and uh, have a dedicated headset uh, that I wear uh, just like Jack and, and Leo and Sherm have a dedicated headset for them. Uh, and, you know, we're the ones that plug it in and, you know, unplug it and put it back in a bag. And and uh, we have a stats monitor. Um, and then, you know, typically you have a stage manager that lets you know when you're coming on the air or if you have a uh, card to read a promotion, they'll give you uh, the card. Now, you know, I have a, a monitor that will just flash up uh, those uh, reads for me to read. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a good size TV. It's 65 inch TV and you watch the game and call the game and you do the best you can, right? You don't see everything, um, that you would, uh, when you're at home or on the road calling a game in person, but there's a couple of different things to that. And, and that is that, I'd say 90% of the arenas, when you're calling an NBA game, you're calling the game what they call opposite camera side, right? So at home, you would see 
a player's left shoulder. While I'm calling the game, I'm opposite camera side, so I would see their right shoulder. And so while you're calling a game, you know, I constantly will look up on the floor to see things live and then also look at the monitor. And then there are cases where you're kind of looking at both. And the reason for that is, is that you're at home and you're seeing the person's right shoulder. I'm seeing their left shoulder. You just want to make sure that all of that is synchronized, right? When you're making the call. So in this situation, you know, we're getting camera side, same look uh, that everyone at home is getting. Um, But the nuances and the feel um, and the ability uh, to have conversations uh, outside of specific media availability with um, executives, coaches, players, scouts, you know, those sort of moments, uh, you know, are lost. However, the Raptors have done an amazing job of uh, providing media availability and then also uh, the ability for me before games uh, to sit down and record via Zoom uh, an interview with Nick Nurse. So you're still getting those sort of things. Um, and then ultimately the ball goes up in the air and you just call the game, right? And uh, you do the best you can based upon what you see um, at home. And, and it was great that we had three scrimmages um, because it allowed us to kind of work on you know, some of the technological um, issues and kind of get a feel and a sense. And um, we did the last game was also a dry run for ESPN uh, in the U.S. It didn't go to air, but it's just a dry run. So there was just a lot of things because Chris Phillips and Dave Leader, Leader um, is the uh, producer. Chris Phillips is a director. They have a lot going on in their television truck, right? Because they're taking feeds. We have one camera that's dedicated to us. And then the rest, you know, you're cutting a show based upon these different, you know, looks um, that are being fed to you. So it's not easy uh, to do. But as I think as, you know, I think as the games continue on, you know, we'll all uh, be more, you know, get more and more comfortable with it. Usually, when you, when you when you go uh, during a regular season, when you're you know you're in person, uh, you come with your own camera crew, and the you know visiting team maybe has its own camera crew, and you have two separate broadcasts here. Uh, in in the bubble, do you still have two sets of cameras supplied by each team, or is just one feed going out to everybody? Yeah. So for us during the regular season at home, we have our own dedicated uh, camera crew. The the even the crew that works for the opponent um, in Toronto are um, a crew that is uh, put together from people that are here in uh, the greater Toronto area. Uh, We we will travel members of our crew from camera, different other sort of different angles when we get into the playoffs. Right. Uh, So. Um, and each typically home team uh, throughout the course of a season, uh, they're responsible for crewing, you know, these shows essentially. OK, so you go into, you know, different venues and, uh, you know, most of the time or a lot of the time you'll have the same 
crew members, but a lot of time you don't have the same crew members because there's other events going on, college football, the NFL or a hockey game or whatever in that market area. Uh, so, you know, that is always a challenge. Um, and that's why you always feel really comfortable when you have all of your crew members, um, you know, at home. As far as how everything uh, is being done through Orlando, it's more like the Olympics where you have a what would be known as a world feed. And, you know, you have dedicated uh, camera uh, personnel there, you know, uh, you know, doing the game. And then you're taking all the different angles in and you're, you know, cutting the game appropriately. We have one dedicated camera uh, for us uh, down in Orlando. Now, the national shows uh, ESPN and Turner in the U.S., you know, they have upwards of like 25 different camera angles. You will see different camera angles that you haven't seen before, due in large part to, you know, the venue not having um, fans there, right? And the ability with all these robotic cameras uh, to be able to provide these different angles, right, uh, that we haven't seen before. I noticed that last night. Uh, when watching the two NBA games. So, uh, you know, it's, it's um, you know, typically the director, the producer, they'll be, you know, specifically the director would be in communication with the camera people that are there um, on site doing the game. But in these situations, you're not. You're just in communication with one camera person. So if we are doing a story or if we're doing something that is specific to the Raptors, um, they can direct that camera person to get a shot of or a picture of, you know, who uh, we would be talking about. So there's definitely a lot of nuance and intricacies to all of this. And and the great part is when the ball goes up in the air, you know, fans can sit back and enjoy it and, um, you know, hopefully, you know, see a long run, you know, for the Toronto Raptors. What, what has the NBA learned so far? Like if if you look at the, from a personal perspective, I'm not going back to a grocery store. I'm going on Instacart. It's a permanent change that COVID has uh, probably introduced. Or same with work at home. A lot of people are probably never going to go back to to the, to the levels of the office that they were pre-COVID. Are there some behaviors or cases where that that were introduced by COVID that will become? permanent or have a higher chance of becoming more or less sort of permanent changes in the NBA, the way, the way the game is covered or, or, or the way the game is played? Well, that I think continues to evolve. I can tell you this, that for me, the number one thing that I have seen on our three scrimmages or in our three scrimmages. And then last night that I absolutely love and think that potentially uh, you could see that uh, later on, and, and, and again, we, we don't know what next season looks like, right? We don't know, you know, to your point, right? There are just so many things, you know, that behaviors that will change. But initially, one of the things that I really love from a viewing standpoint, and then also as an announcer, because during the course of the year, you know, when you have coaches challenges, you know, so much of it is guesswork on what exactly they're looking at. Um, you know, we could have a producer and director that are listening in a little bit that could sometimes provide us a heads up. But I love 
through, you know, the scrimmages and then the two games last night, when you go right to the scorers table, they have a camera and they take the full mic of the official explaining exactly, you know, what has transpired. Um, and I think that that from a fan standpoint and from a broadcasting standpoint, I really like, and that's just the first thing off the top of my head that you just mentioned, Hey, this is going to be something different. I could see them bringing that into all of uh, the broadcasts on a go forward basis or all the games, you know, where, you know, they're looking at the two monitors, they've made the decision, you know, are they going to reverse a call or is a call going to stand? They just move over. They have a microphone there. Um, you can see, obviously, now there's a plexiglass, but there's a camera behind the plexiglass, and the official says, you know, that call stands or, you know, that call is going to be reversed. And it just provides so much clarity to that moment instead of guesswork. Yeah. Hey, it's like the uh, NFL, right? I mean, uh, they've been doing this for years where the, where the referee just tells you exactly what happened. Going back to the uh, like the the third scrimmage that you mentioned against uh, the Suns, uh, yeah, that that had a lot of like technical experiments that were going on, and and the Raptors' claw was like slicing through players, and it was it was you know Twitter had a blast on that one. Did you see some more opportunities in that in, in integrating that technology during the games? You know, look at last night; they had the shot clock right above the free throw line on the floor. Actually, all of the graphics that you will see on the broadcasts are all going to be virtual except for um, the NBA logo in the middle and then Black Lives Matter. Everything else uh, is going to be virtually uh, put there. They they have through the years and, and, and the score bug, if you notice in the, in the Raptors broadcasts, uh, you'll see, and the score bug is, is exactly that it gives you the score, the time that's remaining as well as, uh, the shot clock, they'll from there, you know, put out who's on the floor, right? So there are times, obviously, where I'll mention who's on the floor, and then they'll also put, uh, you know, from the score bug, you know, who's on the floor uh, in both our TSN and Sportsnet shows. Um, so, uh, you know, there's been that. There, there's been some other uh, things that they have done um, from a technological standpoint through the years. Um, but I think, you know, now it provides an opportunity as we know to, to take a look at a lot of different things. Right. Um, and, and, and it's also, you know, you know, what we get used to as well. Right. I mean, how many shows have you sat back and watched on Christmas day, you know, when they try a new camera angle, um, you know, like with a camera that's actually moving with the player, right, from end line to end line. And, and you know, the feedback, you know, from that has not always been great where people say, well, wait a minute, just give me, you know, camera one. In the U.S., it's called camera one, which would be the main uh, camera up top in Canada. It's called camera two. Um, very much similar. You mentioned soccer, right? Soccer, you have that main full shot camera up top, right? And you're sitting on that for quite some time um, before you get into, you know, some of the other cameras that you use. Um, so in the NBA game, uh, you know, you have access to a lot of different cameras. Uh, and, you know, I think that there'll be, there's always conversations about innovation and all that, but 
There's also an element to at least the feedback that I get. And uh, you, you, you let me know, like, you know, for all of the different angles sometimes and for all the different uh, things that you try to add at the end of the day, a lot of fans, you know, their feedback to me has always been, Hey, look, I just love the ball going up in the air, call the game. <laughs> right. And, and, but I think that there's a level, I think there are some things that um, based upon what we've seen will be um, looked at and improved. The places to shout out that you, that you did the play that you had Malton the other day, is that off the top of your head or do you have like a list of things in front of you that you like, I got to get through these like four or five cities. Every game varies Malton because Sherman Hamilton grew up there and he was with me uh, calling <laughs> okay. the game. And a lot of it comes from people requesting uh, on uh, my Twitter feed and I'll just go down the line and, and look at, you know, different places that are asking for a shout out. There's really only been one time, well, two times really, uh, that I've gone in with a plan of, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And I, and I've mentioned this before, but in game one of the NBA finals, I mentioned the 13 capitals of the provinces and territories and amazingly enough, the Raptors made 13 threes. Now, don't tell, <laughs> you know, don't ask me if if they made 12 who got left out. It, it didn't even I didn't have a list of where I was going next or this first and that second or whatever. And if they made 14, I don't know where I would have gone. So they made 13. It worked out perfectly. And then uh, game two, um, which I've shared before, uh, the the you know Canada as you know, uh, over the last three years have led, has led the NBA in players outside of the U S right. Representing uh, a country. Canada has been second only to the U S in NBA players. And so out of respect for those players, um, I'm, I gave shout outs to the cities in which they were either, uh, born and, or they grew up in. And, um, and so, you know, I did that. And then after that, uh, you know, I went, I went back to just, you know, whatever was showing up on my timeline and, um, and just hopefully making people smile and, and, and have a good time with it. Cause that's really the intent of, of it is, you know, the first one I ever did. It, it's not anything, look at a lot of people have used that over the last, you know, 50, 60 years of broadcasting, whether it be in baseball or uh, basketball, uh, you know, with respect to he hit, you know, he hit the ball all the way to uh, Oakville. And, you know, he made that shot all the way from Mississauga, right? It has to do with the depth on the court. Uh, and that's where it started. And then, you know, people were, you know, in the day and age of social media, they really, you know, enjoyed it. And, um, you know, if I can, you know, kind of provide some of that, uh, in the, in the context of a basketball game, um, in a basketball community, uh, you know, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's been great. Who scares you most in the East? There, there's really not a team. I think that the Raptors, I think each one presents uh, different challenges. Uh, Milwaukee does, right? We know that with Giannis. 
think Boston's a team that you can't forget about um, because they have some dynamic players. Um, Philadelphia, we know, you know, how big they can play and be and how difficult, um, but I, but I think, you know, not having JJ Redick is, is, uh, something that could affect them. Um, but I think that those are the four teams in the East, but I, I don't look at any one of those teams and say, yeah, the Raptors can't beat that team in a, in a seven best of seven. I, I think they can beat all of those teams in the best of seven. And a lot of that has to do with their defense. I think that the Raptors are the best team in the East. Um, they're a team that you can tell from everything you've read and, and heard from the Raptors. They're in that bubble to win it. Uh, their focus, we talked about this a little bit earlier on, just about how, you know, they have that, that will and drive uh, to get it done. But I think their ability to be so adaptable, as we talked about earlier, with the versatility of their roster, and then Nick Nurse's willingness and the players' willingness to play and defend uh, differently than every other NBA team, uh, to me, really makes them the team in the East. You're putting a premium on versatility as as, as that being a, a, an, ad, an advantage for the Raptors and their ability to play different styles. A thousand percent. I think that that was one of the things that really solidified for me during that run. I think in order, if you look at all championship caliber teams, their ability to play multiple styles based upon who they're playing against in that moment um, really uh, is what separates them. Because as we know, not every game is going to go according to plan, right? Not every game, you know, is going to, you know, unfold the way you see it. Can you adapt during the course of that game? You know, can you read the situation um, and, you know, can you evolve within the flow of a series? I, you know, the the idea of this is who we are and we are um, going to stay true to this. Um, I think there's an element of that, but we saw it in the Philadelphia series, right? It was adjust and play bigger. Right. And if they didn't do that, would they have been able to win that series in game in, in seven games? I don't know. I think that a lot of it had to do with a, as I mentioned before, Masai and Bobby doing an amazing job of creating a roster that allowed Nick to go in different ways based upon different matchups. Right. And so to me, you know, that really, uh, when you look at it, uh, puts the Raptors um, in a different category. Uh, and then you get through Philadelphia and you take on Milwaukee and then all of a sudden it's Norm and it's Fred again, right? Uh, you get it against Golden State and it becomes, you know, uh, you know, another uh, opportunity for Fred and, um, you know, different players, right, to step up and, and, and emerge. So I do think versatility is a lot. That that does not say that the Raptors don't have core beliefs and principles, and this is what 
thousand percent. And specifically they do on the defensive end, right? Specifically they do on the defensive end. And then, you know, their offense, um, you know, really flows, you know, from their defense. So um, to me, you know, they're really uh, difficult to handle. Um, They really are because of that ability to play multiple styles. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, for sure. I mean, and and speaking of uh, uh, players who are who are versatile, uh, OG has been uh, pretty damn good in the first three scrimmages. Struggled maybe a little in the first game, but but I mean, from my perspective, like I, I've seen him like put the ball on the on, on the floor with great confidence. Uh, maybe something that I hadn't seen as much before. What has sort of stuck out for you as uh, as what's been different about OG? Well, I think yeah, it's interesting. Yesterday. Uh, the broadcast crew uh, spoke with Adrian Griffin, uh, who is lead assistant for the Raps. And, you know, we're talking about different players, OG and, and Norman Powell, Norman Powell, specifically just the the growth of his game and, you know, how, um, you know, people don't realize how challenging this league is on a night in and night out basis, maybe. And, and we've seen how Norm, you know, here it's taken him, you know, four years plus, right, to really get comfortable. And, and we've seen that. And and for OG, you know, let's not forget, you know, he comes in off of an ACL, uh, does, you know, uh, you know, play a lot as a rookie. And and then, you know, last year, the injuries and the, the role and who he is, um, you know, changing, evolving. And I think he spent a lot of time, you know, during the hiatus, working on his ball handling skills. To your point, I think he showed that. I think that's still a growth. He's only 22 years of age in his third season. And so that will, you know, continue. Uh, We know what he can do as a defender. Uh, We've seen it, whether it's guarding a James Harden, um, you know, whether it's guarding multiple positions. And that's the same thing that could be said for, you know, somebody like Pascal Siakam, where, you know, last year you really saw uh, Pascal evolve uh, where he was handling the ball, initiating the offense. You're going to see even more of that, you know, now and, um, you know, the ability to play multiple positions. Uh, we've seen him play, you know, essentially one through five. We've seen him guard one through five. Um, and, you know, all those sort of interchangeable parts in the uh, the development of the players, uh, to me, is one of the reasons why, you know, the Raptors are the best, you know, one of the best organizations. Uh, you think about the utilization of the 905 um, and what they've been able to do. Uh, you think about Terrence Davis and uh, and his rookie year as an undrafted player. Uh, when you start talking about players like the Raptors are producing, you know, that is up there with the great years of San Antonio and the reputation they had, or the Miami heat under Pat Riley, the reputation that they had for developing uh, players. Um, And it says a lot about the Raptors organization. It says a lot about, you know, the players as well. You call multiple sports uh, and you've been a professional broadcaster for decades now, you know, basketball, baseball, tennis. Is there one particular skill that that is required of uh, of broadcasters that younger people who are aspiring to, to to have a place in sports media or become broadcasters uh that they should 
sort of work on if they want to pursue a career like yours. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the reason I mentioned the different sports is that, yeah, we, we always have specialization and that we need to know a little bit more about basketball to talk about basketball, need to know a little bit about baseball to talk about baseball. But are there some core skills that are like common across just any sport you call that that you would encourage younger people to develop? Well, that's a good question. Uh, leads me to a lot of you know, potential answers here. You know, number one, as you mentioned, I've called a lot of different sports, football, basketball, baseball, uh, wrestling at the Olympics, tennis, uh, decathlon, track and field at, at Olympics, synchronized diving uh, for NBC at the Olympics. Um, and and the, you have to love preparation. You have to love uh individual stories, team stories, um, the amount of, you know, prep work. I don't know, um, you know, people realize, you know, the amount before you get on the air to what's done, uh, reading and researching. Um, and, and back when I started, you know, that was getting magazines and newspaper clippings and, you know, keeping file folders of everything. And, you know, then it evolved into sports information directors or PR people FedExing overnight, uh, <laughs> you know, everything to you. And then uh, it evolved to fa what was called fax back where you typed into the fax machine and you could actually get stats <laughs> immediately. Right. Uh -huh. Which was absolutely amazing. Right. Um, and now, as we all know, you can go on the internet and you can, the, the websites that I use for my research, you can log on to, right? Um, so that's why to me, you know, it ends up, you know, coming back to, you know, the skill of calling the game, uh, recognizing the moment. And and then also having and developing the relationships that allow you to share a story or two uh, that, you know, you you don't have access to online. Right. Um, and, and that's why it's important to, you know, develop the relationships with the coaches and executives and scouts and players in order to find some of those nuggets. Uh, that you can use on a broadcast, but I've seen it go from, you know, every morning going down to the corner uh, newspaper stand and, you know, buying, you know, uh, you know, 10 newspapers, right. And, uh, you know, just cutting and pasting and doing all those sort of things. And, and there's a lot of what I do that's still handwritten, uh, because that's and color coded, you know, based upon I have so many markers and highlighters and all those sort of different things, because that's what I've done for. And that's evolved. The prep work has evolved over the years. Uh, the one thing I, I, you know, I used to always carry around the NBA official guide and the NBA register, which had all these different, uh, you know, stats and records and player bio information. And, and now of course you can download it on your iPad, right? So my, my backpack has become certainly not as heavy um, in the media guides and all the other different things that, 
you used to get. Now you can get all online. You ultimately have to be comfortable with the way that you call a game. And just like I'm calling a game right now off of a television monitor, um, you know, I would, if, if you want to become a broadcaster and now look at on your phone, you can voice record back in the day at a cassette tape, right. With a microphone. And I would, um, you know, turn down the sound of games and I would try to call the game and you're typically your own worst critic. So you'll know if you're, um, you know, doing it, uh, you know, doing it the way you want to do it, you know, what you may or may not get, um, uh, comfortable with and, and know what you may need to work on. But that's certainly, you know, something that's, you know, important to get comfortable with your own voice. Uh, and you know, the only way, um, you get better is by doing it. Uh, I don't know that there's anybody born, to be a broadcaster. Um, I think that it's something that, you know, if you're passionate about, if you love it, if you're willing to really work at it, um, that you can become a broadcaster. And and that was certainly the case for me. I mean, I never even thought about doing play by play until I was actually in the industry where I graduated from school and was working as a local NBC uh, new, uh, sports reporter and weekend anchor. Um, I didn't know that it was really possible at the time to become uh, a play-by-play announcer. I initially was just like, hey, I want to be on TV and do the 6 and 10 o'clock or 6 and 11 o'clock sports. And, um, and then, you know, I really you know, sat back and thought about what I really wanted to do. And that was be there calling a game live um, where there isn't a script. And so that's ultimately what led me down the road of doing high school games and minor league baseball games and college basketball games um, and everything until uh, in, in 1999, uh, Adam Silver, who's you know now the commissioner, was the VP of NBA Entertainment, and they were starting a channel called NBA TV, uh, and I was hired to be a host. But in addition to that, I was still doing college play-by-play uh, for basketball in the greater New York area, um, and I tried to you know just keep getting better at both. You know, I'll you know the great thing about NBA TV Canada is they replay the games right in the morning. And so, uh, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll, as I prepare for the next day, you know, I'll listen to the games and, and try to understand, okay, Hey, could I've said something different? Could I've done this differently? You know, did I have enough energy? Uh, should I have done this or that? And, and that's all kind of a, a work in progress. And, and you try to continue to get better even at my stage for sure. I, I, I do watch and listen for sure. I do. Um, because I think, um, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, if, if you really, I mean, I love doing what I do, right. I love calling games and I want to get better. Right. And there's, uh, whether it's any sport that I call, I'm always analyzing, 
and, and, and there's a part early on in your career where you can definitely overanalyze, right? And it's the old line of uh, paralysis by analysis, right? Where you think too much instead of just reading and reacting, right? Like a player. Um, and so uh, there, you know, there's a little bit of, okay, hey, you're stepping into the booth, you're going to call or you're there courtside at the broadcast position, call the game, and then analyze it after, right? Instead of analyzing it as you go. Um, so it's definitely, you know, something that, you know, you have fun with. Um, and, you know, I think everybody can tell, you know, we love to have fun on the game and the game always dictates where you go. That's number one thing to me from a broadcasting standpoint, the game will let you know where to go. I have a ton of preparation in front of me. Do I and notes and everything that I keep? Do I utilize all of them? No, I don't. But some games you may need all of them, or some of them, and sometimes you don't need any of them, right? Because the game will let you know if it's a tight game. And also, I will tell you this: that that's changed and evolved, right? The conversations on the air have changed and evolved because the possessions are up. Um, a 20 point lead is no longer a 20 point lead. Like it was when I started, um, a 20 point lead can evaporate in three shots, right? Three misses on one end, three shots on the other end. It's an 11 point game. And all of a sudden there's a timeout. And so all of that has evolved and changed as well. We know with all the offensive uh, rule changes and the shot clock being adjusted on an offensive rebound from 24 to 14, the game is quicker, right? So that changes things. And those are all different things that I sit back, listen, watch, learn, talk to uh, other professionals about and, and try to get better in hopes that you're providing, you know, the fans, you know, the very best that you can. Is there a, play-by-play -play, uh, person out there that you admire? Well, I think there's multiple people. There's not just one person. Um, you know, somebody that is a, a very good friend of mine who um, in the late 90s when he ended up uh, becoming the radio, full-time radio voice of the, well, he was already the full-time radio voice, but then became the television voice of the New York Knicks. Mike Breen, um, you know, I, I'll never forget, uh, you know, he, he was very, um, influential to me. Our friendship, uh, is lasting. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, different ways of preparing and all those sort of things. Um, you know, I think, you know, Marv Albert has certainly set a standard, on the air, I think um, Kevin Harlan, uh, who also I count as a friend, is somebody that I you know really enjoy listening to. Um, and there's so many of of the announcers in the NBA uh, you get to know over the years, and you know have a good relationship with. Um, but as far as bouncing stuff off of, uh, you know, Mike Breen and I, uh, you know, have talked a lot. Uh, over the years, um, and I and Eagle and I, uh, because I started in, in New York, or not started, but I was there, you know, for a good stretch 
uh, at Madison Square Garden Network, and and uh, Mike was there at that time. Gus Johnson uh, was there at that time. Uh, Kenny Albert was there. So, I mean, there was just um, you know a bunch of announcers that was always great to kind of catch up to and ask questions to. Al Trotwig, I remember he's um, you know uh, an announcer at MSG that always would do the Olympics and the first Olympics I ever did and. In 2004 in Athens, I asked him a lot of questions uh, about, you know, how to cover an Olympic sport that you haven't called before. And, you know, he was great. There's a lot um, of announcers out there. And and there's not just one from baseball. um, I remember in in 1993 meeting uh, Tom and Jerry. I was a broadcaster for the Palm Springs Angels. Uh, on an off day, I traveled up to uh, Anaheim uh, to watch the then California Angels play the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. And prior, I got there early, you know, three, four hours before the game. And in baseball, different from basketball in that there's a booth, right? And I was able, obviously, through the Angels, because the uh, Palm Springs Angels were a single-A affiliate in the California League of um, the, you know, Angels, uh, to get a press pass. And, you know, I introduced myself to, to Tom and Jerry and said, hey, you know, Matt Devlin, I'm a you know, single A broadcaster, you know, from uh, Palm Springs Angels. Would you mind, you know, if I sat in the back of the booth and just listened to how you call a game? And, and they were both so welcoming. Um, in fact, uh, Jerry said, hey, send me a tape and I'll get back to you and give you some pointers. And he certainly did that. I still have the letter to this day. Uh, Tom was exceptional. He, he said, how do you keep score? What kind of scorecard do you use? And, um, you know, he said, I got this from Jack Buck and he ripped it out of the back of this book. And he said, here, you, you, you know, make copies of this. You can use this. This is how I, you know, again, you have to understand 1993, nobody had computers, right? You're, you're getting all of your numbers, you know, you're handwriting all of your numbers. You're, you know, getting box scores out of the newspaper, uh, you know, at the minor league level, you know, you're keeping track of everything yourself at bats, walks, all that. He had all that information that he would keep uh, as well. Uh, and so he showed me everything that he did. So all those sort of things, um, you know, really uh, stand out. Uh, Jack Buck, Joe Buck's father, who's a legendary voice of the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, listening to him. Uh, being able to sit in the back of the KMOX radio booth when I worked for the Springfield Cardinals and Springfield, Illinois in 1992, you know, was certainly impactful. Um, and a lot of that was just conversations about, you know, how to be better and what can you do and um, and practicing and, and all those sort of things. So there's there hasn't been just one person. Uh, there's been a collective. But at the end of the day, I think any announcer out there, you have to um, ultimately call a game the way uh, I remember a broadcaster telling me you end up calling the game the way you like to listen to it. And I thought that was really interesting. Right. Uh, and, you know, I think that's, there's a lot of truth probably in that. Um, but I think some of that too evolves over the years and, uh, but there, there, you know, certainly along the way, there's been, you know, some great conversations, uh, about, you know, the art of, of calling a game. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, those friendships are, are, you know, I'm very grateful for those. 
Matt Devlin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. You got it. My pleasure. Thank you. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.